Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed, but the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. and welcome back to episode 302 of Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and in today's episode, we're going to continue the tragic story of the murder of Kiao Gove in the investigation that followed. Before you go on with this episode, if you happen to be someone who lived in the Pleasant Grove area of Dallas, Texas in the early 90s, or if you're just someone who considers yourself a bit of a home sleuth, you may want to hit pause and get out a pencil and paper. Today is the day where the rubber meets the road. Throughout this episode, I'm going to be breaking down a year's worth of investigation into Kiao's murder. Throughout the course of the episode, you're going to hear many, many names. Everyone that I'm going to be talking about is someone that we need to track down. And it may be someone that you know. I'm asking for every one of you that's listening to use all of the resources at your disposal, be it your memory or your social media pages, we need your help to track down these people. As a quick recap, Mrs. Kiao Gove was killed on the grounds of Spruce High School on July 25, 1991. At the time, Kiao was working at the high school in the cafeteria as a pastry chef. Her body was discovered about 7.30 in the morning by a neighbor, Danny Stanberry. And the investigation to find the killer began within minutes of Kiao's death. Kiao's husband, Kenneth, was questioned immediately. He told police that he left for work at 6.10 a.m. and arrived at work at Tamco around 6.20. Kenneth's supervisor, Mr. Taylor, verified that Kenneth arrived at 6.20 and he never left the premises. But it wasn't long before tips started rolling in. The lead detective's name who investigated the murder was Kyle Royster. At 12.15 p.m., about three and a half hours after the crime, Royster received a call from Miss Rosie Simmons. She's described as a neighbor. Royster's report says this about the call. Quote, She informed me that a black male who usually wears a black t-shirt and black shorts and or sweatpants 
and who appears to be psychologically unbalanced, walks or jogs in the same area where Mrs. Gove walks between the hours of 7 a.m. and 8 a.m. He resides in the neighborhood. This gentleman is always observed talking to himself and sometimes verbally abuses women who walk and jog around Spruce High School. Three hours into the investigation, and Royster already has a lead. The next morning at 8 a.m., he was contacted by officers Marco and Welsh. The officers informed him that they had spoken to a Mrs. Cornelius Bonner, who lives in the neighborhood. Mrs. Bonner told them that her daughter, Gladys Blanford, told her that she saw Kiao between 7 a.m. and 7.15 a.m. on the morning that she was killed. Detective Davidson contacted Mrs. Bonner right away. He made contact at 8.25 a.m., the morning after the murder. Bonner confirmed what Marco and Welsh had told him, and she passed on contact information for her daughter Gladys. At 8.50 a.m., Detective Davidson contacted Gladys at work. Gladys told detectives that around 7.05 a.m., on the morning Kia was killed, she saw a strange-acting black male walking up her street. However, she did not witness the offense. I did some digging, and it turns out that Gladys lived right behind the Goves on Mill Valley Lane. This is the neighborhood that I mentioned on the follow-up episode, just 100 yards or so away from the Spruce High School grounds. Later that morning, Officer Welch made another call to Detective Royster. This time, he stated that he himself had talked to a black male who was walking around the high school near the offense location who appeared, quote, strange. Now, keep in mind here, this isn't a statement from some witness. Officer Welch directly spoke with this man, and he described him as being strange. Welch didn't get the man's name, but was told by the man that he lived on Mill Valley Lane, the same street that Gladys Blanford lived on. After lunch that day, Detectives Royster and Davidson went to the address that Welch had passed along to speak with this, quote, strange black man. As it turns out, the man's name is Robert Moffat. The detective's notes state that Moffat was employed at Baylor Hospital. Moffat volunteered to go to the station for questioning. He told police that he usually gets up and walks every morning between 7 and 8 a.m., On the day of the murder, he says that he changed his routine because he observed the ambulances and police cars on the east side of the school. Well, that makes sense, but here's the rub. Gladys told police that she saw Mr. Moffat walking at 7.05 a.m. Mr. Moffat himself says that his walks went from 7 to 8 a.m. Kia was not found by Mr. Stanberry until 7.30 a.m., and police and EMS didn't arrive on the scene until 7.45 So if he's walking at 7.05 and his routine is to walk around the school, why did he have to break his routine? At an average pace, it takes a human being less than 20 minutes to walk a mile. If Moffat began his walk on Mill Valley Lane at 7.05, he would have easily finished his first lap by 7.25. It's believed that the attack on Kiao occurred right about that time. If he made a second lap, he would have completed that by 7.45 before the police and EMS arrived on the scene. Point being that he could have easily made it around the school twice before police and EMS ever arrived on scene, and he would have been making his laps at the exact time that the murder occurred. The timing just doesn't add up. And let's not forget that by his own admission, Mr. Moffat would see Kiao walking every day. And we know that Kiao's routine was to walk at 7 in the morning. But fortunately for Mr. Moffat, Royster quickly ruled him out as a suspect. 
During his interview, Moffat stated that he usually saw the, quote, oriental lady walking in the mornings. Further evidence that he would have been walking around the school well before emergency personnel arrived. But he says that he did not see her on the day of the attack. Moffat told police that on that day he was wearing a black t-shirt with gold letters and black shorts. He voluntarily signed a consent to search form, allowing Royster and Davidson to search his home. The clothing that Moffat told investigators that he was wearing that day were found in the house. Royster's report states that they did not appear to have been laundered and showed no traces of blood. As a side note, and this will become more relevant later in the case, I wouldn't expect to find blood on the killer's clothing. Keo did not suffer any arterial lacerations. If you compare her attack to the attack on Elnora Griffin from Season 2, Elnora was nude and her throat was slit. Both carotid arteries were severed. There was a lot of blood, and there would have been blood literally spraying from her wounds. Now, in Keo's case, she was stabbed multiple times through two layers of clothing. These were not arterial cuts. They're stab wounds, and there is a difference. Blood would ooze out of these wounds, not spray. Also, there was a shirt and jacket between the wound and the killer that would catch most of the blood. In Keo's case, I really wouldn't expect to find any blood on the killer, or at least very little. Maybe on the hands and or anything the hands touched, but the offenders certainly wouldn't have been covered in blood. In Royster's report, he states that he doesn't believe that Moffat is psychologically unstable. Moffat's explanation for his perceived, quote, strange behavior reads as follows in the report. Quote, Mr. Moffat told me that while he jogged around the school, he often talked aloud, quoting Bible scriptures, and he sometimes recited sermons while he jogged because he was the assistant pastor at an Oak Cliff church, end quote. There is no indication in the report that Royster ever contacted the Oak Cliff church to verify Moffat's explanation. Nonetheless, Moffat was eliminated as a suspect. The next day, a Sergeant DeCorte received information from a phone conversation with an unknown white male. Side note, not sure how he knew it was a white male over the phone, but I digress. The caller told Sergeant DeCorte about a white male, 25 to 30 years old, who lived in an apartment complex near the offense location in apartment 205 with his girlfriend and brother. DeCorte thought this person may be a possible suspect. That person was Jesse Eldridge. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. 
No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. After receiving the phone call about Jesse, Sergeant DeCorte wrote the following report. Quote, I received a telephone call from a middle-aged white male who refused to give his name. He stated he believed he had some information on the killing of the woman Thursday morning. He told me there was a white male, 25 to 30 years old, who lived in the apartment near the location. This individual was 6 foot to 6 foot 2, clean cut, medium build, with short brown hair. He may be staying in apartment number 205 with his brother and a fat girlfriend. He thought he had an older model pickup. The information the caller had was that this individual was on probation for a robbery slash stabbing. Also, he had heard that this man may be responsible for a burglary several weeks ago at the same apartments where the complainant was stabbed. He then told me that earlier in the month, the apartment manager had been killed when someone entered her apartment and stabbed her. There were no rumors concerning this man and the apartment manager's death. The caller stated that he has met this man before and was very afraid of him. End quote. Besides the information about Kiao's death, there's a key fact noted in this report that needs to be addressed. On June 24th, one month before Kiao's murder, the manager of Jesse's apartment complex was brutally murdered. Her name was Lillian Wynn. Much like Kiao, Lillian's murder seemed to be completely senseless and without motive. She was found in her apartment with her skull bashed in multiple times with a hammer. She was killed in the middle of the day and she wasn't raped or robbed. As it turns out, her killer was finally caught months after the murder and months after Kiao's murder. She was killed by her teenage grandson, Gary Wynn. Wynn was later convicted and sentenced to 99 years in prison. But on July 25, 1991, the day that Kiao was killed, he was still walking free. On August 1st, exactly one week after the murder, Detectives Royster and Davidson visited the only apartment complex in the neighborhood and went to apartment 205, but no one was home. A week later, they returned to find Troy Eldridge, Jesse's brother. Troy stated that he lived there with his brother, Jesse. Troy told Royster that he had no knowledge of the offense and that they would have to return later if they wanted to speak with his brother. Royster finally tracked Jesse down on October 2nd at the Lou Starrett Justice Center got arrested on a, a parole blue warrant for beating up Tammy's stepfather, but I was in the Dallas County Jail when Detective Royster and his, I think his partner come also, but they come to see me in the county jail to interview me concerning the murder, if I knew anything about it or, or anything like that. And after talking to them, you know, my first question, why are they coming after me? And they said they're not. They just they're interviewing everybody in the neighborhood. Uh, for some reason, I, I'm stuck on a number. They said they had interviewed over 60 people concerning... Uh, Royster's report reads as follows. Mr. Eldridge, at a later date, was eliminated as a possible suspect in the case because of other tips received in the case focusing on another suspect. This was the entirety of the investigation into Jesse as a suspect. One conversation. We still to this day do not know who made that Crime Stoppers tip. But about three months after Royster spoke with Jesse, it seemed he finally had a break in the case. 
On November 22nd, Royster received a phone call from a Miss Judy Gonzalez, affectionately known by her family as Aunt Mama Judy. Gonzalez stated that on the day of the murder, she saw three black males and one white male dragging Kiao from a white and gray Camaro Z28. She says that she saw Kiao struggling and screaming for help. The report says that Gonzalez watched as one of the suspects covered Kiao's mouth with a rag to keep her from screaming. Gonzalez was traveling that morning with her 13-year-old nephew, Jesse James Swindell who also witnessed the offense. It had been four months since the murder, and Royster's report indicates that Miss Gonzalez offered no explanation as to why she waited so long to contact the police. Nonetheless, both Judy and Jesse swore out affidavits for Royster. We don't have a copy of Judy's affidavit. Sadly, she passed away before the trial, so her affidavit was never admitted. But we do have Jesse James Swindell's affidavit, and it reads as follows. I am giving this statement to Detective K.W. Royster, who has identified himself to me as a Dallas police officer and who is writing this statement for me. I was with my aunt, Mama Judy, who was driving a pickup truck. We were looking for Ronnie, my cousin. As we were coming from September Street to Grady, we saw four people dragging a woman into a white Z28 Camaro. The car had Z28 on the side. There were three black guys and one white guy. I saw them cover her and put her into the car. Then they all got in with one of the black guys driving. As they took off, they hit one of the tires on the street. I don't know if they stayed on September Street or not after turning off Grady. I was over at Aunt Mama Judy's house a couple of days later, and she told me that they killed that lady on the day we saw this happen. I did tell my mom what happened the same day this happened. I don't know what time this happened, but it was almost day. That affidavit was written on November 27, 1991. Swindell did testify at Jesse's trial. After reading his trial testimony and going through all of Royster's notes, it's clear that Swindell and Aunt Mama Judy had provided the strongest lead in the case, at least as far as Royster was concerned. In the notes, we find the exact location where Jesse and Judy witnessed the woman being dragged into the car. Swindell stated that the attack occurred near the corner of Grady and Apache, just a few doors down from Kiao's house. He says that after she was dragged into the car, the vehicle took off eastbound and squealed their tires as they turned right onto September. Kiao's body was found on September, just a half a block from where it intersects with Grady Lane. Royster spent the better part of two years attempting to expand on the information that these two gave him. As it turns out, Mama Judy and Jesse were in the area that morning looking for Jesse's cousin, Ronnie Swindell. He was missing that morning. Royster's notes indicate that one of the many Crime Stoppers tips that he received implicated a Ronnie Blackwell. Royster believed that Ronnie Blackwell may have actually been Ronnie Swindell. We also find out that Jesse James Swindell's mother did in fact confirm to Royster that Jesse had told her about the incident on the day it occurred. She told Royster that she had advised Judy to call the police, and she has no idea why she waited so long to do so. In one of Royster's notes dated December 4, 1991, he says, quote, It is believed by this detective that Miss Gonzalez did witness this offense. Up to this point, we've covered the most significant leads, 
or at least the leads that Royster found significant enough to follow up on and include in his report. But remember when you heard Jesse say that Royster told him that he had interviewed over 60 people? Well, that appears to be not far from the truth. Aside from Royster's official report, I was also able to obtain a copy of Royster's investigative notes through an open records request with the Dallas DA. In the notes, we find many more leads that either didn't pan out or were never followed up on. One of the leads was regarding a man named Sivesri Vargas, and that's spelled S-I-V-E-S-R-E, Vargas. On July 31st, so we're just six days after the murder, an officer Trevino noted a phone call from a Mrs. Elsa Vela. Mrs. Vela told Trevino that on Monday, July 29th, her children advised her that a Latin male riding a 10-speed bike was outside asking if he could buy some pears off of their pear tree. Elsa advised her kids to tell the man no, and he rode away. Then two days later, the day that she made that phone call, Mrs. Vela saw the man riding his bike again. This time she stepped out and spoke to him. The man was later identified as Mr. Sylvestri Vargas. He again asked to buy some pears. She says that when she told him no, he became nervous. I'll read the rest directly from Royster's notes. Quote, In her opinion, he was acting strangely, as if he was retarded or on drugs. He even fell off the bike. She asked him if he lived around here, and he said that he lived around the corner. When she asked where, he got on his bike and left in a hurry. She stated that she has lived in the neighborhood for over four years and has never seen him around. End quote. Vela described him as a Latino male in his 30s, 5'6", 180 to 185 pounds, hair shaved off, no facial hair, and he had scratches to his face and his head, and something wrong with his right eye. This lead wasn't followed up on until three days later when Royster was going door-to-door looking for information. On August 3rd, Royster spoke with a woman named Billy Joe Espinoza and her husband Cesar. Billy Joe told Royster that on the morning Kia was killed between 7.25 and 7.30 a.m., she observed a Hispanic male, about 35 years old, weighing about 150 to 180 pounds, on a 10-speed bicycle. Cesar then told Royster that on that same morning that he observed Kiao walk past his house towards September at 7.20 a.m. This was just 10 minutes before Mr. Stanberry discovered her body on September Road. During the course of the interview, a friend... Miss Lisa Bogan stopped by. She told Royster that on the morning of the murder, she was waiting for a bus in front of Spruce High School at 6.30 a.m., and she observed a Hispanic male on a bicycle riding across the street. She also advised Royster that Elsa Vela might have more information on where the Hispanic man lived. This is the same woman who had called the police and spoke with Trevino three days earlier. Royster then went to speak with Mrs. Vela. Mrs. Vela further described the man to Royster as having hair closely shaved on the sides and that he had scratches all over him and appeared to have a black eye. During the conversation, Elsa's husband came home and told Royster that he knows where the man lives. He had seen him sitting on his porch with a woman. Royster and his partner headed right over there, and through an interpreter, Royster spoke to Mr. Vargas. His notes indicate that Vargas did fit the physical description given by Mrs. Espinoza, Mrs. Bogan, and Mrs. Vela. However, he saw no signs of physical injuries. Now bear in mind at this point, we are nine days after the murder. Plenty of time for any minor injuries to have healed. 
Mr. Vargas told the detectives that he works from 7 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. and gave the detectives his work phone number and the names of his supervisors, Henry Villia and Dennis Grobin. Royster took photos of Vargas and his bicycle, and he left. The notes state that Mr. Vargas' supervisors will be contacted at a later date to confirm that he was actually at work on the day of the murder. But there's no indication whatsoever in any of Royster's notes or reports that the supervisors were ever contacted. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As the investigation continued, there were a lot of other leads that just didn't pan out. These are just a few of them. A woman named Karen Oler told detectives that she saw a black male dressed in black shorts and a shirt run away from the area and nearly hit her car the morning of the murder. But follow-up determined that this incident occurred around 5.30 in the morning, nearly two hours before Kiao was killed. A woman named Bessie Delarosa said that she talked with Kiao the Monday before she was killed around 5.30 p.m., she says that Kiao and Kenneth were walking when they spoke. She says that Kiao told her that earlier that morning, a white van was following her while she was walking. Oddly, though, Bessie swears that she is certain that the incident with the van occurred between 5.45 and 6 a.m. This directly conflicts with Kenneth's trial testimony regarding Kiao's morning routine. Regardless, Royster investigated, and the van was later determined to belong to a woman named Sherry Huckel. She lived at the same apartment complex as Jesse. She says that her estranged husband, Terry Huckel, sometimes drove the van. Royster looked into him and determined that he was not a suspect. Quote, It is the opinion of the reporting officer that he is not the suspect. Other leads are being followed. End quote. Kiao's close friend and supervisor, Constance Jackson, told police that her co-worker, Loretta Smith, might know something about the case. She had been telling people that she knew who killed Kiao. Constance also told Royster that Kiao seemed happy with her marriage and that she was happy with her life. She described Kiao as a loving and caring individual. I found no record of Royster actually tracking down Loretta. And on that note... If anyone listening knows a Miss Loretta Smith who worked at Spruce High School in 1991, please get in contact with me. Based on the tip that came in that Royster assumed was referring to Jesse Eldridge, Royster tracked down the gray pickup truck at the apartment complex. What we don't read in the report, but we find in the notes, was that that was not even Jesse's truck. It was registered to a man named Bruce Almeyer. The note about the registration is the last time we read Almeyer's name. In a note written by Royster on August 7th, we get some answers about the keys that were found in the mailbox. For starters, the keys weren't found exactly one week after the murder, as Kenneth testified to at trial. They were actually found by Kenneth and Kiao's son, Kirby. 
he found the keys in the mailbox 11 days after his mother was killed, and Kenneth didn't inform the police about this discovery for another two days. The note also states, quote, Mr. Groves said that no one saw anyone. He said that the complainant's key ring had a big K on it. He said that there was no address or name label on the key ring and that the complainant didn't have any identification label on it. So there's the answer to the question everyone was asking after 301. There was nothing on the keys to identify whose they were. And according to Kenneth, Kirby found the keys about a week and a half after the murder. And sadly, Royster never even bothered to go get them. At Jesse's trial, Kenneth was actually recalled to testify on the last day. The transcripts for this, along with all the other documents discussed today, will be up on the website. When Kenneth was recalled, we get a detailed account of what happened with the keys, and he also reveals his utter disgust at Royster's disinterest. Kenneth says that he took two weeks off after the murder. The day the keys were found, he and Kirby were both home. He says that their mailbox was made of a smooth metal and was attached to the house right next to the door. It's the type of smooth metal that is perfect for pulling fingerprints off of. But no one ever did. Kenneth says that he checked the mail every day. The keys were not in the mailbox the day before. He believes that they were put in the mailbox in the middle of the night while he was sleeping. The Goves had two small dogs that would bark every time someone walked by, which was often as many people walked around the school for exercise. Kenneth said that the only way someone could have walked up to their front door to slip the keys into the box would have had to have been in the middle of the night when he and Kirby and the dogs were sleeping. Kenneth also described Kiao as a creature of habit. He said that every time she would go for a walk, which was every day, she would wrap her keys in a white handkerchief and carry them in her right hand as she walked. As a side note, I want to point out that I misspoke in last week's episode. I had said that Kiao was holding the knife in her right hand, but as it turns out this week when we got into the investigative notes, Mr. Stanberry says that the knife was actually in her left hand. But moving on, Kenna said that she would wrap the keys in the handkerchief because the keys would leave a smell on her hands if she didn't. Also, Kenna says he tended to lube the locks in the house, which meant the keys always had a residue of grease and graphite on them. Furthermore, we find out through his testimony that it's not only unlikely that Kiao could have been identified by her keys, but it was in fact impossible. As you heard just a minute ago, Kiao's keys had a K on them, but this is what Kenneth had to say about that at trial. Quote, The initial K was for her given name, but no one in the neighborhood, except where she worked, her name was Jit, J-I-T-T. Everyone knew her as Jit. If anybody happened to see and even know what happened to her, it wouldn't register because a K wouldn't have meant anything to anybody. Kenneth goes on to say that he called Royster and wanted him to come get the keys for evidence. Here's Kenneth's testimony from the trial. Quote, I talked to him. I said I don't know anything about fingerprints. I don't know about anything else. He says, well, he didn't think it was important. I felt it's the only thing we have at this time. But he didn't. End quote. Kenneth goes on to say that Kirby only touched the keys carefully by the ring, and they were placed on a shelf for three years, never touched and never moved. Kenneth never gave up hope that someday those keys might lead to finding his wife's killer, but they never did. 
because Royster never bothered to pick them up or even dust the mailbox for fingerprints. The only piece of physical evidence that may have been tied directly to the killer just sat on a shelf collecting dust for years. As time went on, Kenneth was getting desperate. While Royster was spending time looking for a Vietnamese model to make a Crime Stoppers video, Kenneth hired a psychic. This is Royster's note from April of 1992. Quote, Received a letter and cassette tape from complainant's husband, Mr. Ken Gove. He sent a tape recording of a session he had with a psychic, John Catchings. The tape was not of high quality. Because of this reason, I took the tape to the document section to be transposed. End quote. This is the last we hear about the psychic. It's never brought up in the report again. One lead after another led Royster nowhere. It honestly seems to me that he was so hung up on Judy Gonzalez and Jesse James Swindell's story about the four men dragging a woman into a car that he basically ignored everything else that came along. That is until about a year after Kiao was killed. On July 21, 1992, an officer with the last name of Hermettinger received an anonymous phone call. It was a woman on the phone, and she claimed to have information about the murder of Kiao Gove. The woman said that she was at a Tupperware party, and some women at the party were talking about a man whose sister lived on their street. Their street was later learned to be Mill Valley Lane, the same street where the black male was seen by several people walking during the early hours of the morning that Kiao was killed. One of the ladies said the man killed the Vietnamese lady. He disappeared right after the murder and has not returned to the neighborhood since. The man was simply described as a black male. The caller didn't know the man, but she knew his sister. Her name was Barbara Williams. This lead got Detective Royster's attention, and he called Mrs. Williams. Mrs. Williams informed Royster that it wasn't her brother that was staying with her at the time of Mrs. Gove's murder. It was her husband's brother, Kenneth Ray Williams. Barbara advised Royster to speak with her husband, and Royster did just that. Mr. Williams confirmed to Royster that his brother had indeed been living with them around July the year before. He wasn't sure of his brother's address, but he told Royster that Kenneth was living somewhere in West Dallas. It wasn't until four months later when Royster finally tracked down Kenneth Ray Williams in prison. Williams had been picked up on a probation violation. Royster's notes state that Kenneth tried to lie to him about his prior offenses, but when he confronted him with his record, he finally came clean. He eventually did admit that he was indeed staying with his brother on Mill Valley Lane at the time of the murder. Royster's report states the following regarding Kenneth Ray Williams. Quote, It is my opinion he is the suspect in this offense. However, unless an eyewitness comes forward, it cannot be proven. End quote. At the conclusion of Royster's 45 pages of investigative notes and his 13-page homicide report, he wrote the following. There were only two possible eyewitnesses to this offense, and they did not get a good look at the suspects and could only give a general description of the possible vehicle involved. Leads in this investigation were generated through Crime Stoppers and anonymous telephone tips. All workable leads have been exhausted. On 
January 12, 1993, 18 months after Kiao's murder, Detective Royster met with Kenneth Gove and informed him that an arrest is not imminent. Royster told Kenneth that the case would never be closed until the person responsible is convicted. But the reality of the situation was that for all intents and purposes, the case was closed. Royster had given up. For a year after Royster gave up on the investigation, the case lay dormant. That is until a man who was known throughout the Dallas PD as a, quote, master interrogator picked up the case. Detective Don Watts was part of Dallas's cold case division, and he had a reputation for getting, quote, reluctant witnesses to talk. Watts had reopened the case when family drama and a $10,000 reward led to the arrest of an unlikely suspect. Next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. All music and scoring was done by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Hoyt, and Sarah Mueller. And I want to invite you all to engage in this investigation. Our website has been redesigned by Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com. On the website, you'll find all of the photographs and case documents for each week's episode. And there's a lot of reading after this one. And don't forget that we record our Friday follow-up episodes on Wednesdays. And we open the phone lines up at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesday morning. The phone number to call in is 269-224-2833. When you call in, your questions will be answered by myself on the air. Also, if you have any thoughts, theories, or ideas you want to send in to be answered on the Friday follow-ups, you can either email them to theories at truthandjusticepod.com, or you can comment on our episode posts on the Facebook page, or tweet your questions to us at truthjusticepod using hashtag episode 302. Until then, however you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.